If you have your Bible, join me in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. For those in my Sunday school class, I promise, Matthew chapter 6. I tried three times to preach this message in Sunday school and kept getting back to the actual PowerPoint and my notes didn't match. And finally, I realized I had the wrong notes. So as we come today, we have been looking at and studying the hard sayings of Jesus Christ. Things that Jesus said in Scripture that when you look at them, they may be commonplace to us now. But at the moment you see them, there are questions that arise. And you have a natural moment in which you have to go, really? I'm not sure. And there's a force to change in your life. Today, when we come to this passage, we look at a very familiar passage first. And then there's a thought that Jesus adds in that you have to step back and say, really, why is it that this is what the Lord chooses to make a point out of? So join me in Matthew chapter 6, we are in verse 5. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet. And when thou hast shut the door, pray to thy father which is in secret, and thy father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. But when ye pray, use not vain repetition as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Now, this would be the idea of a ritualistic prayer in which they just repeat the same thing over and over and over, expecting that it will bring more power with God. Verse 8. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your heavenly Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. After this manner therefore... So, we have now what we know as the Lord's Prayer. This is the example given to us of how we are to pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So the idea, God, let your name be great and be glorified. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. When you come to this passage and you look at it and you look at the Lord's Prayer, there's a lot in the Lord's Prayer and there's been many messages preached on the Lord's Prayer. If you step back and you look at the Lord's Prayer and you say, out of those verses that we just looked at, which of those needs explanation? Well, it would be fair to say that all of them are fairly self-explanatory. Though there would be a little bit more in hallowed be thy name. There would be a little bit more of trying to understand what that means for God to be great. Lead us not into temptation. Now, now that has some power behind it, but simple to understand. Thy kingdom come. Well, again, there could be a little more unpacking there. As what does it mean when the Lord says, let, you know, what do you want your kingdom to be like here on earth and when you come again? But of those that we look at in here and we go, well, really, that's fairly self-explanatory is forgive us our debts verse 12 as we forgive our debtors in other place in luke when we look back to this lord's prayer forgive our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us so forgive the things that we do wrong as we forgive what other people have done wrong to us fairly self-explanatory but the lord knows the heart of men and of all the parts of this passage, he comes in 
and he takes and he gives us more explanation of that phrase. Look at verse 14. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So, restated twice, once in the positive, once in the negative. He comes back to the phrase about forgiving debtors, and Jesus makes a statement that we have to go, really? That I'm not sure that I understand why he would say that. Jesus teaches you can't get forgiveness until you give forgiveness. Now that, at face value, has some ideas of concern. My forgiveness in Jesus Christ comes because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. Because he died for sins, I can be forgiven. So my forgiveness is in the blood of Christ. So why is it that I have to forgive other people to get the forgiveness of Christ? That would then mean that I have to do the work of forgiving someone else before I can have forgiveness from God. Therefore, my salvation would be based on my works of forgiving someone else. Well, let's define exactly what he's talking about here to dispel that unbelief. Forgiveness here, the word forgive means to hurl away. So I am to take and I am to hurl away, to throw away any trespass that has been done against me. And the Lord, in turn, does the same thing. In fact, Scripture teaches us that he takes our sins and he removes them as far as the east is from the west and to the depths of the sea. The idea is that our sins are removed away. But again, I'm still at that place to where I say, okay, my sins can be thrown away, but I have to do the work of forgiving someone else before my sins can be forgiven. Well, there's two different types of forgiveness. There is what is known as judicial forgiveness. Judicial forgiveness is a forgiveness for a relationship. It puts me into a new place in Christ. Now, Scripture clearly teaches us that you can be saved and still need forgiveness. So there's obviously two different types of forgiveness. I need forgiveness for salvation. But I also live as a believer in Jesus Christ with a need for forgiveness. 1 John 5.13 helps me with this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But that verse is written to believers, to those that have trusted in Jesus Christ. So judicial forgiveness is that forgiveness that I get when I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior. There's a word that is used in Scripture. And it's a big word that sometimes we kind of lose the meaning of. And the word is justification. Uh, as a child, if you grow up in church, you may be taught that that word justified means just as if I'd never sinned. Well, that is a very simple definition. It's an incomplete definition, but it still gets across the idea. Justification is very much a legal term. It is the term of when someone would go before a judge. They would stand before the judge and the court case would be tried. When the court case is tried, there is at the end of that a verdict that has to be handed down. That verdict, in my case, when I stand before God in the guilt of my sin, is I am guilty. Jesus Christ took the punishment for my sin. He died on the cross in my place. 
His blood, the shedding of blood, brings the remission of sins. His death on the cross takes the place of my punishment. So that word justification means that when I stand before God and God sees who I am, he knows that I'm a sinner. And all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And because of my sin, I cannot go to heaven. I am separated from God. I should be declared guilty. But because I have trusted in Jesus Christ as my Savior, I have accepted him as my Savior, I am then justified, is the word that's used in Scripture. I am then declared righteous. In court case today, if someone goes before the judge, they're tried, the jury goes aside, they collaborate, they come up with their answer, they come back, and a judge will find the individual not guilty, or guilty, depending. There is a difference between being declared not guilty by reason of the law to suffer punishment for your crime and being declared innocent or righteous. Not guilty is the idea that I can't be convicted based on the evidence. Have you ever seen in the news someone was, we used to use this expression, guilty as homemade sin, uh, who was guilty as all get out, but yet they were released because they couldn't be found guilty. We've seen that in, in the news and in media. We know they're guilty, but because of some technicality, they get off. You can go through the court system, not suffer crime or punishment for your crime, and yet still be guilty of your crime. When I stand before God, I am not guilty for my sin and yet not punished for my sin. I am declared righteous. It is not only just as if I had never sinned, but it's just as if I would never sin again. And it is just that I am now more than I could ever be because the righteousness of Christ is in me. So judicial forgiveness is that moment when I trust in Jesus Christ as my Savior, I am justified, I am declared righteous. And I enter into a new relationship with God. Now, my relationship with God is based on Jesus Christ. I become joint heir with Christ. I am a child of God. All of that is judicial forgiveness. It is me in the courtroom of God declared righteous because of Christ. Now, there's also what we see in scripture that can be defined as parental forgiveness. Parental forgiveness has the idea of fellowship. My child becomes my child at birth. It is their birth that enters into a relationship with me. There are other ways in which a parent-child relationship can be brought into existence, such as adoption. And that's the picture given in scripture of our relationship with God. We come into it, we are adopted because of Christ, and we are in a new relationship. But once in that relationship, I can still do things that break the fellowship. Said every married husband ever, okay? So I, I have been married. I am in a relationship with my wife. It is a legal binding relationship, but it's real easy for me to do something to break fellowship. Children can break fellowship with their parents all the time. When I break fellowship, I need parental forgiveness to restore that relationship. Now, the relationship isn't lost, but the fellowship has lost. And I have to restore the fellowship to that relationship.
That's the forgiveness that we're looking at here in Scripture. So when Jesus declares, you need to forgive others, whatever it is that has come between you and someone else has broken the fellowship of that relationship, whatever that relationship may be. When you do something with someone else that has broken fellowship with them, it also hurts your fellowship with your Father in heaven. And therefore, there has to be a restoring of this relationship to help fix the relationship with God. So your fellowship here is important because of your fellowship in heaven. So when I come to this passage here in Matthew chapter 6, what I see is I have to first be judicially forgiven. I have to have trusted Christ as my Savior. If I have done that, I have entered into a new relationship. But to keep that relationship healthy, I then need parental forgiveness so that there is fellowship in that relationship. All of us have parents, okay? They may no longer be on this earth, but all of us have parents. And all of us have known at some time in our life when that fellowship was broken with parents. And whatever the case may be, it may be small, it may be big, when it's broken, there has to be a process of restoring that. The easiest way, and this is what I try to teach my children, is you say, and we are very particular about this, we say, I'm sorry, not sorry, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Because forgiveness is what must be sought to restore that fellowship. And we try to teach that early on, and we try to exercise that with ourselves towards our children, with ourselves towards each other. When it comes to what Christ is teaching here, he's helping us understand. If you want power in prayer, your power in prayer is not going to come as a result of vain repetition, saying the same thing over and over. Perhaps having a little bracelet of beads and repeating the same thing as you go from one bead to the next, that's not going to get you forgiveness. That's not going to get you power in prayer. But one thing that will absolutely keep you from having power in prayer is when you have a problem with someone else. In fact, elsewhere in Scripture, we're taught a little bit more about this principle of forgiveness. We're taught if you have aught between you and a brother and you go to bring your gift to the altar, don't bring your gift until you get things right. Leave the gift, go find the person that you've got a broken fellowship with, get that right, then come back and give your gift. Peter asked the Lord, Peter said, well, how many times am I supposed to forgive someone? In that day, it was common practice. The rabbis taught that you were to forgive four times. If you forgive, we say three strikes and you're out. For them, it was four, okay? So you could forgive up to four times. After the fourth time, you didn't have to forgive them anymore. You were done. So Peter, trying to be righteous that he was, goes to the Lord. He says, how many times do I have to forgive? Seven times? Well, the standard was four, so I'm good at seven, right? And the Lord says, no, you forgive seven times 70. You, you keep on forgiving, and you keep forgiving, and you keep forgiving. Because if you don't forgive, coming back to Matthew 6 then your father won't forgive you. Not judicially, but parentally. So you lose fellowship with God when you break fellowship with man. 
that's a hard thing. Because we like to think that my fellowship with God supersedes my fellowship with man. And that as long as I'm right with God, it really doesn't matter if I'm right with anybody else. Now, if you're a people pleaser in here, that sentence makes no sense to you. If you're not a people pleaser in here, you go, yeah, I agree with that. Why do I have to worry about them? I just got to worry about me and God and then forget them. It doesn't matter. That's not what scriptures teach. It's not what Jesus himself is saying here. He's saying there is a real value that the world will know you are my disciples by your love one for another. The world will know that you are different by the way you treat people. And that you cannot say that you love God who you have not seen when you don't love man who you have seen. So when you have broken fellowship, you need to get that right first before you come to me. I don't like that. One, God's far more accessible than people are. And, and God doesn't talk back to make me feel as guilty. And at least my guilt doesn't have to be seen by others when I'm before God. But when I have to go and eat crow, I don't like the taste, even with salt. I, I don't want to go to that situation. But I have to recognize that situation affects my walk with the Lord. Why? Many reasons, but we're going to look at three of them real quickly this morning. Unforgiveness yields bitterness. It is a natural outpouring. When I won't forgive, the natural result of that unforgiveness is bitterness. It just produces. It's putting a corn seed in the ground and watching corn grow. It's going to happen. When I take and I leave unforgiveness inside of me, then it grows into an anger. And that anger results in bitterness. That bitterness is an acid that eats away at the container of myself. Forgiveness is to cancel a debt when the debt cannot be repaid. Most of the time, unforgiveness that supersedes in our life is something that is so great that it can't actually ever be paid back. I'll give you an example. The other day, I was driving, I was driving the little church truck home, and it's a little red pickup truck, and there's something about that truck that says, pull out in front of me. I don't know what it is, but, it, but it, ha it never happens to me, but it happened to me multiple times just driving it to my house to do some work on it and driving it back. This guy comes out of Patriot Park, never stopped the car in front of him, went, he went smack right out in front of me, never slowed down, and then he waves. Like, thanks. Thanks? You just about ran me off the road, man. And then I had a moment at the traffic light when he's in front of me, and I thought, oh, well, you know, he's got his kid with him because I saw him talking to somebody over in the passenger seat. I thought, well, he's got his kid with him. He's probably a little distracted. I've been there. Then the dog sticks its head out the window. And I'm like, it's just his dog. Okay, and again, this happened several times. I don't know what it was about the little truck and people pulling out in front of me. But when that happens, you go, eh. And you just go on from that. You forgive that and you walk on. When someone does something that alters your life, that's much harder to forgive. And that forgiveness that alters your life, I have heard young people say of their parents, well, they did this and because they loved my sibling more than me, I, and they have this inside of them this unforgiveness about something that if you talk to the parent the parent would probably go I got no idea what they're talking about but that unforgiveness 
has now been a debt that can't be repaid. You can't go back and change something that happened 10 years ago. But because of that unforgiveness, there has become a bitterness that now has affected the way that they live. And that bitterness now, when they come before God, is still eating away inside of them. And the Lord's saying, we can't have fellowship because this bitterness is destroying you. And this, you're bringing this bitterness into our relationship. It's one of the reasons why when you see marriages that fall apart and those individuals get remarried, that the divorce rate keeps going up each time someone gets remarried. And the reason is because there's unresolved issues of forgiveness that haven't been granted, and it's brought into the new relationship, and it affects that relationship, and so on, and so on, and so on. When we come before the Lord, if we have that bitterness, it so affects our relationship with the Father. Unforgiveness yields bitterness. Unforgiveness forfeits blessing. When the Lord looks at us in that parental relationship, there are good things that the Lord has for us. There's no doubt about that. There is a desire for God to do things in our life in special ways as his children. Any parent who looks at their child sees in their child more than their child sees in themselves. They see all the potential in the world in that child. The Lord sees it. The Lord wants to help with it. But because of this broken relationship, because of this unforgiveness, the Lord then says, I can't give you forgiveness. And in a right relationship with me comes my blessing. But you've messed up our relationship because of this relationship. And therefore, I can't bless you the way that I want to bless you. So that my unforgiveness towards someone else is actually forfeiting some of the goodness that God has in store for me. And yet I don't see it. And when someone has done something wrong, I feel like they owe me a debt. And when they finally pay that back, then... Or when they finally say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Well, then maybe I will. But if I just forgive them without them coming to me, then they won. And I don't want them to win. But in the end, I'm the one who's lost. Because that bitterness is inside of me. It is hurting my relationship with my father. And it has broken the ability for him to give forgiveness to me. Unforgiveness invites judgment. When I'm not right with God, God is going to do what he can to get me back right with him. God is so perfect and we can't comprehend his perfection. That God does not discipline out of a desire to make us hurt. God disciplines, he chastens as a father does, a son to restore us into fellowship. God's desire by bringing judgment in our life is to help get us back to him. And so if I have bitterness towards someone else and I have unforgiveness, it has then affected my relationship with God. I'm forfeiting blessing, but I'm also going to have chastening in my life that is going to help bring me back to God. And it's going to help me try to realize what's broken here so I can get what's right here. God just wants our fellowship. You know, we always heard this expression growing up when you were kids. I promise this hurts you more than it does me. That's not really true most of the time. Most of the time, if done right, it, it hurts the kids a lot more than it hurts the parents. But any parent will tell you that there are times when you just know that this is a heart issue 
And as a parent, you feel like you're losing the battle. And you feel like you're losing your child's heart. And the action doesn't really matter. It's the fact that you feel like you're losing their heart. And you would do anything you could to get that heart back. That's exactly what the Lord's doing. So when I have unforgiveness, God is saying, I I sent my son to die for you. The relationship I have with you is why I made this world. It's why anything exists. And in that relationship, it only works when we have fellowship. And what's going on in your life right now is hurting that fellowship. And I will do anything because I want your heart back. It's why the greatest of all commandments is that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our might. God wants that fellowship back with us. And if chastening is required to bring it back, then he will. And so there are times in our life when we go under chastening. But we understand we forgive because we are forgiven so that we can forgive. We forgive because we are forgiven so that we can be, again, forgiven. The reason I have to forgive someone else for what they have done wrong to me, regardless of whether they ever apologize for it or not, the reason I have to forgive them is because I've been forgiven. I've been forgiven by God judicially, and that forgiveness is so great that how can I not forgive whatever someone has done to me? But I forgive them because I've been forgiven. But in forgiving them, because I've already been forgiven, it allows me to be forgiven again because I continue to do things to break fellowship. It's a constant cycle in my life. But let's be honest. This cycle, the cycle between God and me, in which I am constantly seeking forgiveness and trying to live in good fellowship with God, it can be challenging, but at the end of the day, it's something that it's really completely up to me and I can do it any moment at any time. When I complicate it by adding in unforgiveness towards someone else, now my flesh has another point of strength to keep me from getting right from God. Because it's a violation towards me, it's a debt they can't pay back, and I have a right in my heart and mind to be unforgiving. But when I take that right, and I don't forgive, then my fellowship is lost, and that forgiveness is gone. So, I forgive because I've already been forgiven judicially. But I forgive because I also want parental forgiveness in my life. They both go together. Joseph understood this. Joseph in Genesis chapter 50, after his brethren had sold him into slavery, and then he is there and he goes through Potiphar's house and he ends up in Pharaoh's house, and his dad dies and passes away. His brothers are convinced that he's only been good to them because their dad was alive, and now that their dad's dead, he's going to ruin them. And Joseph said unto them, Fear not, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, ye thought evil against me. No doubt you did me wrong, but God meant it unto good, to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. Now therefore fear ye not, I will nourish you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spake kindly unto them. Forgiveness goes beyond, okay, you're forgiven. Joseph says, not only do I recognize you tried to do me harm, but God meant it unto good, but I'm going to take care of you and your families the rest of your lives. That's forgiveness. Stephen, 
Stephen was arrested for preaching about Jesus Christ. When he began to preach to those that were of the religious leaders, they got so irritated and so angry at him, the Bible tells us they began to gnash on him with their teeth. They began to bite him because he was standing up for Christ and teaching about Jesus. And in Acts 7, verse 60, as they're stoning him, he kneeled down and he cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He died as he was being stoned to death, giving forgiveness. He showed them mercy because mercy supersedes judgment. We will see, because of our unforgiveness, judgment from God chastening to help get us back. Mercy supersedes judgment. What we want in our life is mercy, not getting what we deserve. I love not getting what I deserve. Now, there are times we feel like I didn't get what I deserved and we feel like we were, something was taken away from us. But there are plenty of times when we do things that we know we did that were not right and when that mercy comes, that's such a joy. That's such a blessing. Mercy supersedes judgment. James 2.13 For he shall have judgment without mercy that hath showed no mercy. And mercy rejoiceth against judgment. If we show mercy... We get mercy. We show forgiveness. We receive forgiveness. When someone has done wrong by us. And there is a debt that is owed to us. The issue is not will they pay the debt back. The issue is will I look at them and say I'm not going to give them what they deserve. Instead I'm going to forgive. I'm going to cancel the debt that they owe me. Because that forgiveness supersedes any judgment that they owe. To have received mercy and to not give mercy is to abuse the gift of mercy. Every one of us was given mercy on the cross. When Jesus died, we accept him as Savior. That is an act of mercy. We deserve hell. We get heaven. To receive mercy and to not give mercy is to abuse the gift of mercy. Jacob DeShazer was one of the Doolittle Raiders. Um, now, for those of you who aren't familiar, the Doolittle Raiders were a group of men that were involved in a special Air Force mission during World War II. What happened, DeShazer was born in Oregon. He grew up in that area. Pearl Harbor was bombed. When Pearl Harbor was bombed, DeShazer didn't really know what he was going to do with his life, so he joined the military. When he joined the military, he ended up flying in one of the planes that would later be. They, they asked for volunteers. He was one of them. And they ended up in a group. They didn't know why. They didn't know what they were to be doing. They trained them, and the goal was to get the B-25 bombers so light and so specialized that they could take off from an aircraft carrier. This was considered impossible. Doolittle was a commander who had done some amazing feats in aviation, and so he was the head of this group. They trained up multiple squadrons, they put them in their B-25s on an aircraft carrier, and they started towards Japan. The problem was Japan, they had no way of being able to attack Japan because they didn't have a landing spot close enough that they could refuel and they could get the planes over Japan to bomb them after the attack of Pearl Harbor. So these planes were loaded on the aircraft carrier, they were going to get the aircraft carrier as close as they could. They put extra fuel tanks on there and they were going to have these planes go, take off, fly over Japan, bomb Japan, 
make their way back over to China and try and land in China in a safe area there that Japan had not invaded yet. As they started getting closer, there was a problem. They believed that they had been seen by a Japanese submarine, so they had to get the planes off 200 miles further from Japan than they expected. They were loading canisters of fuel onto the planes. As the planes took off, they flew very low going across the ocean. They would take these extra gas cans and pour the fuel on the plane, throw coals in the gas can, throw them out the door. That way they would sink and they wouldn't leave a trail of gas cans for the Japanese pilots to follow them. They flew and not all of them even made it, but most of them were able to make it there to Japan. They bombed different sites in Japan, but they were so far out and their fuel level was so low that they had an extremely difficult time of getting back over to China. The Shazer was on one of these planes. As they got there over China, they had to bail out. Some crashed in the sea and different things. But when they bailed out, they landed. And DeShazer actually landed in a cemetery, broke a couple of ribs during the landing. The next day, he, he was trying to figure out whether he was in hostile China or in Japan-controlled China, and, or non-hostile. And so he goes about, and he's finally captured. He's sentenced to prison, and he's taken in to a POW camp. He doesn't know who else is there or what's going on. Come to find out, over the next 18 days, he was beaten and tortured there in that camp for 18 days. After that, he was removed for 40 days. He was moved into another location in that prison. He was actually in a bamboo cage, he said. In that bamboo cage, there were 40 men roughly in that cage. The cage wasn't big enough so that at night, they couldn't all lay down. They would have to lean against each other. Over time, he got out of there. It was 40 days before he ever got to take his first bath, brush his teeth for the first time. Over the next 40 months, he was in solitary confinement for the better part of three years of those 40 months. He was beaten. He was tortured. They had lice, fleas. At one point, he was so infected with boils that they were all over the bottoms of his feet. One day, he was allowed outside, and him and another one of the men that was from a different crew were out in the yard. That man who weighed about 200 pounds when he had been taken into captivity was down to about 80 pounds, as you can see there in the picture. Um, and these are not necessarily the Doolittle Raiders. These were just men who were taken from a POW camp at the time. One day, when he was out with this man who was down to just basically nothing, the man began to tell him about Christ. Now, DeShazer had grown up in a Christian home, but he also knew he he'd never believed in Christ. And he knew about the Bible, but he just didn't believe. While in that yard that day, this other man, his name was Bob, he was an officer, he, he told him about Christ and he believed that Christ had a purpose in this. The Shazer wasn't sure about it. Within a couple of days, that man died. When he died, he had basically starved to death. And the Shazer had watched it happen to his friend. He was so angry and so bitter. But the guards recognized that the punishment on them was so severe that they didn't want all the prisoners dying because they would look bad. So they began to feed them a little bit more as a result of Bob dying, and they actually gave them books, one of which was a Bible. The Shazer got the Bible, and they would rotate through the different men, and he got it. He got to keep it for three weeks. He read through the Bible completely, Old Testament and New Testament. He read through it again a second time. Third time through, he just began to read some of the passages that were some of his favorites. He came to Romans 10, 9, and he said that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. And he got saved that day in his prison cell. He said at that moment, 
I wouldn't have traded places with anyone. He began to learn. He, he committed large passages to, to memory in the three weeks that he had the Bible. But he recognized that he was supposed to love his enemies. And that was hard. Much of his survival had been fueled by his hatred for his captors. One day, he was taken out, and he was brought back. And on his way back in, the guard was in a hurry and just shoved him into a cell and slammed the door. When he did, he caught his foot in the door. When he slammed it on his door, the guard began to kick the bottom of his foot until he would pull his foot in the door. Deshazer was hurt. He was mad. But he said, I knew I needed to forgive my enemies. And he started showing kindness to that guard. Over time, the guards started showing kindness to him. He was transferred to another prison. There was no kindness at that prison. He watched another man die, another one of his fellow soldiers. He went through this for months. One day, in 1945, he just, one of the punishments in that prison was he had to sit on a stool and stare at the wall for 16 hours a day. He wasn't allowed to move off his stool. He wasn't allowed to look at the door. The guards would come in and beat them. He said, I just couldn't handle it anymore. He said, and I just, the Lord just told me I needed to pray. He got down on his knees and he began to pray for the souls of his captors. He prayed for an end to the war and he prayed from 8 that morning till 2.30 that afternoon. The guards came in angry at him. They brought other guards to come. They walked around him, never laid a hand on him, went and got a doctor. And the doctor came and gave him medicine for all the boils that he had. They gave him some food to help him get healthy. And he began to increase in health. But as he prayed that day, he just knew that God had laid on his heart the war was over. Later, he would find out that day as he prayed was the day that the second atomic bomb had been dropped. It was quite some time still before he would be released. When he was released, Jacob DeShazer knew he had one thing he needed to do more than anything else in his life. He needed to go back to Japan and give the gospel to the people of Japan. He went back to the States over several events. He was eventually given his freedom there from the military. Uh, he was given his discharge. He went to Bible college. He went back to Japan. He wrote a track about, I'm a prisoner of Japan, and it made it all through Japan. When he went to get off the boat the first time in Japan, he was married, had a child now. When he went to get off the boat there in Japan, the news from Japan met him, and they couldn't understand why in the world he would come back. And he came back, and he said... I've been forgiven, I forgive those who have mistreated me, and they need the gospel of Jesus Christ. He began to preach, in fact, tonight we'll look at another little part from this story, but, but he began to preach, and he would preach to these huge crowds of people that would come out just to hear this prisoner of war who had now come because he cared so much for the Japanese. In fact, there were trials going on in the U.S., and there were those who had been taken into captivity by the U.S. who had been involved in mistreatment of U.S. prisoners. They were tried for war crimes and they were found guilty. Jacob DeShazer sent a letter to the U.S. to those in charge of this trial and asked for mercy for every single one of them that had been found guilty of war crimes. He had experienced them, but he knew that forgiveness was far more important. Eventually, he would spend 30 years of his life preaching throughout Japan, starting churches, helping get the gospel of Jesus Christ into people's lives. He knew that he had been forgiven, and he knew that he needed to give 
forgiveness. I have never been mistreated the way that he was. And his mistreatment doesn't compare to Christ. And yet, because of Christ's mistreatment, I'm able to spend eternity in heaven. How dare I not forgive someone for what they did to me? If a man like Jacob DeShazer can forgive his mistreatment, whatever it is that you're holding on to, you can let go. You can give that same forgiveness. Let's pray. Father, it is unbelievable the forgiveness that you have given us.